You're listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and supported by the Western Weekender. For three decades, Penrith and the Blue Mountains have turned to the Western Weekender. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Here is your host, Jonathan Robinson Lees. Neely Hay is a musician and composer and has written scores for various TV series, documentaries and commissioned work for the Sydney Dance Company and Sydney Theatre Company. In 2017, Neely won a Screen Music Award for a composition in Last Tree Standing. Despite the awards and experience working alongside household names, it is not the extraneous recognition that drives Neely, but internal gratification and a genuine love for her craft. With years of experience and a growing portfolio, Mealy has found clarity in her work and is inspired about the impact that an emotive piece can add to a production. Mealy joins us virtually for the latest episode of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Mealy, welcome to the Passion and Perspective podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mealy, you compose music for film, TV, dance and theatre And in 2017, you won a Screen Music Award for your score on The Last Tree Standing. As we know, success in arts and in the creative space, it can be very tough. How do you overcome the challenges of of balancing that external gratification and and awards and that intrinsic motivation and knowing that at the end of the day, you're the one who's measuring your own success? Oh, wow. Um, A lot of wine. (laughs) at dinner uh no it's it's a it's it's a very poignant question um you know I'm very aware of ego and um but also very aware of just wanting to make great work so at the end of the day I always try and ground myself by remembering that feeling that um you know before I started writing music for a career so to speak um where I just loved music for music's sake um, and I just feel excited or if I listen to something, I get um, tingles down my spine or, you know, your hair pops up on your skin and, and you're just, just trying to remember that, that passion. Like there was a reason why I came into this profession of, you know, everyone pretty much intrinsically knows the arts is probably one of the hardest jobs to survive in. So, um, just trying to remember that that feeling and so though it's nice to have recognition and yeah you get a bit of a high and you feel your confidence is boosted um which is a big part of it too confidence um and belief uh i always try and ground ground myself back into just know just just remembering that's the feeling that I'm always going for like if I write something if I see something that my music is put to do I you know can I be a third person and just sit back and enjoy it and just listen to it and just be lost and just enjoy it so if I can if I can achieve that um and if I'm still feeling that or if I'm playing a gig and I'm feeling that or uh, showing someone and and feeling that or just listening in the car um if I if I feel that feeling then I know that I'm I'm still on the right path and that self-awareness and reflection has, has that always been the case throughout your career or the more you've gone on have you been able to to get a better understanding of that oh I think when when you first start out of like oh I want to start a band yeah man <laughs> let's go get a gig you know and so we play at the Excelsior in Sydney and you know you're so excited by all those first steps, like, oh, you got into the rehearsal room with a bunch of people who, you know, you think you have a rapport with and you played your first good tune. Every little step was exciting and and didn't really think too much about the idea of success. It was just the fact that, oh, I got in a room and I made some sounds with some people and it was great. Oh, the next step is, oh, I've got to get a gig now. And so then you got a gig and that's something to be excited about. And, but then after a while, and then, oh, you got paid for this first gig. Oh, great. And and so as each little step gets achieved, you're always moving the goalpost. And then you sort of get, and then gradually over time, you get to a point where, for me anyway, I just get a bit, uh, it started to become less about excitement and more about, 
um, work and then it started to creep in a bit and over time I think and that's when I was I don't know when that happened or how that happened but yeah over time the self-awareness of just grounding myself back into the original love was important to me. And how important do you, you know, if you were to pass on advice to a, a young musician or a young composer, you know, paving their way, would, would you encourage them to, to pick that up straight away? Or do you think it's important to have, have a bit of learning and, and strive for the bright lights and the big screen from a young age? Oh, to be honest, I'm such a cynic. I would say, get another job. <laughs> and, uh, and, and uh, find job security so that you can always maintain that passion. Um, but it, it, it's different though, like sometimes, but then I see some really amazing people who sort of went down, you know, full-time work and they're just so exhausted and they don't have time to pursue it. So everyone's different. Everyone's different. Um, I, I'm, I would be more, I don't know what I would, tell young people I feel, I feel like I've still I've still I feel like I've still got a lot to learn I just think you've got to do what feels right and if it feels good just do it and then if you start feeling not good about it that's probably when the self-awareness might kick in um but you've got to just come from it of like I just really want to do I really want to get that gig I really want to make that song happen or I really want to record it or I really want to nail that riff or you know um just that's got to be first and foremost for, for me. Otherwise, yeah, you don't want to overthink it. You want that passion first, I reckon. And Mila, you were born in Malaysia and lived there till you were about the age of five. Do you have much of a recollection of those early years in Malaysia? No, not really. No, I, um, I remember just snippets of just shadows um, uh, and more from photos. Yeah, and having a lot of family around and my older brother always picking on me in a fun way. <laughs> yeah. And then the move to Australia, you grew up in uh, in West Sydney. What was your upbringing like? Um, very strict. Yeah, I had to study all the time. Um, I was one of those classic Chinese girls that we were families that had um, had to play, learn piano, learn classical piano. And... Um, but I had to do my studies as well. And um, I wasn't allowed to go out with, go out to, with friends on the weekends or if I was, you know, I'd have to, I'd have to fight tooth and nail and a lot of friends would be having sleep, sleepover parties, particularly in high school and even in primary school. And that's not a thing that I was allowed to do. That, you know, going through say piano lessons or, or different types of study, did you, did you have the love for the music at, at a young age or is that something you think you developed mm. a bit later on? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, I don't think I particularly loved it. I don't remember analyzing it and going, Oh, I love play the piano. I just can't wait to get back home and practice. Um, to me, it was just, just a thing you did. It's like, Oh, I've got to go practice piano now. Now that's just what I do. Um, you know, clean up for dinner, go practice piano, do my homework. It was just the thing that I did. And it probably wasn't until more in the late high school years where just that feeling of being able to play a chunky, you know, Brahms, Rhapsody, you know, thing and, and uh, trying to get a, you know, fundraising for a grand piano for our school that, it's like, oh yeah, that's when I really felt like, oh, this is this is great. This is you know making a big sound. So, yeah, probably in the younger primary school years, it wasn't as if like I had a burning desire to always play music. And music as a concept, did it did it play much of a role in your upbringing? You know, was there music played around the house? Did you listen to a lot of different types of music at a young age? No, not at all. My parents um. I mean, I think my dad liked a bit of Johnny Cash and Elvis and um, yeah, and dad liked to strum on the guitar and now and then, but it wasn't like they took us to concerts or anything like that. It's just sort of, sort of a thing we didn't really do as a family and culturally, culturally too, I think as migrants, mum and dad probably didn't really know where to go or, you know, didn't know that you could go see, you know, the Aussie ballet or, or something like that. Um, 
I just I do remember in high school, more in high school, I really started getting into musicals. And so I would just go on my own. Mum would drop me off and pick me up. But yeah, as a household, we weren't really into music. But the actually, when I think about it, my brother was probably a bigger influence music-wise. He was, he's an older brother, and he was into Led Zeppelin and uh, you know, that that sort of era in the seventies rock bands era. So I probably got a little bit of osmosis through that. You mentioned the the cultural connection there. As a as a teenager growing up, did you have that kind of strong cultural connection? Did you feel a desire, you know, to, to go back and visit where you were born and, and had your early formative years? No, no, not at all. Um, sometimes I, it's a curious thing because I didn't, I, I, I tended to mix more with the Australians, white Australians. Um, and though I went to, a high school that probably did have a Chinese population, well, the first high school went, I tended not to relate to them as much. So I, I was actually opposite. I was very frustrated by, um, you know, the traditional ways that my parents were brought up versus my Australian counterparts and how they had seemed to have more freedom. Um, and yeah, Malaysia didn't really interest me to, to go back there. I am a little bit now, but, um, yeah, but certainly as a child, that wasn't my, my, um, what I was looking for. How important do you think it is, Melee, for any young girl and boy growing up anywhere in the world to have a, an element of kind of freedom to explore, you know, to, to fall over and pick themselves up, to learn and make mistakes? Like, how, how important do you think that is for, for people's kind of creative development? Well, um... It's funny because I was listening to some of your other podcasts and it's, that wasn't my experience as a young child. Um, and certainly I've spoken to other, with my other friends, certainly my husband had a really different way of finding music as well. But for me, I found the discipline of music, the discipline of classical music is probably what has helped me more, uh, has, has shaped my, my path, I don't know, more. Um, maybe I need a bit needed more freedom as a child, but I th- I think on reflection, I'm being forced to reflect on it right now. I um, I think the discipline of you know and having a always having a goal of um, working towards an exam or you know oh your next lesson you have to achieve this. I think that has set me up for um, in sort of the other aspects of creating music and just you know pushing through and and for example if I've got it if I'm stuck on on a cue you know just persist and find different ways so my personal experience probably hasn't come from play and 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 um, mucking around it that sort of more came later when I finished all my exams and finished school and it's like oh I want to be in a rock band so that's um that's sort of when all my play probably came in and at school, you attended the Newtown High School of the Performing Arts. What were the key learnings, do you think, you took, uh, both musically but also personally from those years? Yeah, so Newtown, I went to Newtown year 11 and 12. So I left Fort Street, which was a, a more academic school, to go to Newtown under the great disappointment of my parents, probably one of the biggest things I riled against um, with them. And what did I learn? Um, I think meeting other people, meeting other people who were like-minded. I actually went in for dance, contemporary dance. That was more my passion at the time. But it just sort of worked out that it wasn't suited to me. Um, so, and yeah, just just having, just being surrounded by people and, and in turning up to school and there was a double period of just, we're going to play this piece of music now. Uh, as opposed to doing math, you know, or double period of working on some choreography or something like that. It was, yeah, it felt like I was, you know, at the school of fame. Like, fame. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, um, oh, yeah, and, the, and also there was this one thing in year 12 where I wanted, I alluded to before, I really wanted a grand piano for the H- HSC. That's how long ago I did it. It's called HSC. And, uh so we raised money so we had to like put 
a concert on and invite all the parents and parents would pay money for a ticket and we raised money to then hire a grand piano because this performing arts school hadn't got it together yet to get a grand piano so it was almost like my first experience in you know event management and being in a band and putting on gigs so yeah and Outside of school, as you touched on earlier, you know, you, you're exposed to different types of music. Uh, you went on to, to join a band, you know, playing different instruments, singing. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, so the, I started my own band so as a pianist and singer with drums, bass and violin. And um, at the time, Tori Amos was really big around that time. So, yeah, it was sort of me trying to break out of classical and do something in, in the pop contemporary scene. So, um, yeah, it was more about me. It was a platform for, platform for me to write songs as opposed to reading dots on a book, which was really different to me and thinking in terms of chord structures. And though I still notated things, it was more, I thought more quarterly and then I would, write um and then i would write um, moving parts to the piano and specific notes around that and so that's uh yeah that experience of just not playing classical tune was great you know learning about pas and di's and you know lo loading gear and late nights and not drinking too much before you went on stage and <laughs> all that kind of stuff were there ambitions at that point, Melee, to to take that places? You know, did you did you have ambitions that this band would become something big, or was it just immersing yourself into that moment and that experience? Oh no, there was ambition. Yeah, definitely. I think you know, I'm always goal orientated. I always wanted to, um, you know, uh, you know, make a release and get it on Triple J and. Um, get high rotation or, you know, join an agent or get a manager. <laughs> so, um, and just, and I was doing um, things back then, which a lot of people do now, but back then I used to have a, it was called a MIDI disc and uh, you would play them. We would play the MIDI disc to a click and the drummer would have a click. And so the MIDI disc would be doing all this electronic beats and then the drummer would sort of play in between or, or play with it. And back then that was pretty weird to not to, to have like electronic sounds coming out of a PA or else now it's a lot more um, accepted now and almost a bit gone the, too much the other way in my mind where they've gotten rid of drummers completely and someone's pl playing Ableton. So, um, so back then it was this weird hybrid of electronica meets Tori Amos and th those were my influences, Massive Attack, Tori Amos, Portishead. And, you know, I just could see that Australian pubs are just not going to, they're a bit weirded out by a bunch of girls on stage doing these weird sounds. So I knew that I would have liked to have done all that and I put an EP out and tried to push it. But, you know, there came a point when I was like, yeah, pretty sure I'm, I'm not going to break it <laughs> into the pub scene with this music. <laughs> have you ever listened back or recently listened back to, to that music and thought, oh, maybe it, maybe it needs to be re-released now when, you know, society's kind of caught up with it. Um, or or have, you, have you just kind of left out where it is? Oh, wow. I've never thought to do that. I think I might cringe a bit because I haven't sung in ages. <laughs> I don't know if I could handle listening to my voice again. <laughs> yeah, I was an untrained singer. So, yeah, maybe I should revisit it. Maybe I have revisited it for the instrumental side of things to see if I can pull ideas from it. This is the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media. For three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. Mila, you also attended the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. Uh, what were your biggest takeaways from, from attending such a highly regarded um, college? Yeah, um, I think what was interesting was I did the part-time course. They had a part-time course then, um, which was much better. Um, 
you know, in terms of being able to survive. Um, and I felt like I, I wanted to get more out of the craft, more, more info out of the craft of writing music to, to film. Um, but being part-time, maybe they just didn't have, they didn't have the, um, the time to sort of really drill down, but maybe partly because I, and another, but then someone else told me, it's like, well, maybe you kind of already got all this, you know, that side of the skills and there's other stuff that you got out of the course. So for me, it helped me with uh, like the nuts and bolts of the business, like learning to read a contract, um, understanding a little bit how films are actually made, you know, and, and sort of getting it, getting it, you know, understanding that's like, sure, you're going to score a film, but, um, you know, the director does this, the producer does this, and editor does this, and, um, you know, you're part of a team, um, and how a film actually gets off the ground and funded. Um, there's all, all those things that you want to learn. And the, but the greatest thing I did get out of that was a recording of a 16 string piece uh, ensemble. So I'd never had that opportunity before. So they'd organized all the session players. And so, um, so just trans transferring my score from uh, MIDI mock-up of strings into real score writing for real players and just make making me think in that way. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty normal for orchestrators and maybe people who've gone to the, to done, done their BMAS or Bachelor in Music to already think that way, but I never really thought that way before because I, I went straight from classical piano to writing things out of the box. Um, using soft synths and so this forced me into a different way of thinking of how an orchestrator would think so that was great and and then to be able to sit in the room of you know in front of the podium next to the conductor and listening to 16 string players play your piece it's like goose pimples you know it's like one of those moments where it's like, oh this is why I'm doing it yeah how important do you think it is, broadly speaking, with, with music to have a respect and understanding for the past and, and those who have come before you? I wouldn't say I seek it out specifically. I wouldn't say I probably, it is probably, sometimes I think it's a failing in me that I don't study that or research that more. I think with my um, studies in in school and classical piano and a little bit of afters. They did a lot, a bit of history, film history. Um, that was sort of enough for me. I don't actually seek it out. I, I actually just watch what's in front of me and, um, and observe what's happening right now. But I think it's very useful. I definitely think it's very useful, but I probably, probably should do it more, but I don't. And Mila, you had your first short film as a composer um, around 2009-2010. How did that come to fruition? Oh yeah, so my friend who was a budding editor, film student, she now edits for Master Chef and Australian Survival and all that. Um, we were friends, we met up here through going to ballet classes I think together. We do that as just as a hobby for fitness and um, she said, oh I'm making this dance film um, do you want to write music for it? And at the time I started playing cello as well and, and she really loved the cello and, um, and yeah, so it was for a student film. I was like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's give it a go. So yeah, that's how it started. And how was that experience? Were you kind of learning on the run or were you pretty set in what you needed to, to get out of it? Oh no, we were completely learning on the run. Just the the biggest thing for film composition, I think, is the dialogue between the composer and the director, and it's one that no matter how much you might um, try and research, to me, there's one. No matter how much you try and research, or you go to afters and you know you listen to experienced composers, their experience, and this is how I do it, and this is this is an anecdotal um, story, or you've read a book about you know how Hans Zimmer did it, or um, you know, how James Newton, uh, uh, how did it, um, this, this, you've got to just do it yourself because everyone's different. We're all different human beings. And so, um, it was, it was, a definitely a big learning experience in knowing how to interpret what she wanted, knowing how to ask what she wants, what to ask of what she wanted. The actual music bit 
to me has wasn't that I mean it was hard of course but to me I felt very grounded and steady in that it was more like trying to find what the film what the film and the director wanted because ultimately the director is in charge and for for those people like myself who aren't across the process when it comes to the composition of music for film or TV at what point are you kind of, I guess, um, slotted into the process? Are you kind of handed a scene and said, create some music for this? Or are you involved from the start and have a say from the start? Yeah, I'd say in most scenarios, um, you are given what's called a rough cut of the of the film. There are cases where I know, uh, and, and also when you start to know your director or they, they're already starting to develop story and things that you do come in from early stages, but usually from a pragmatic sense, um, the film's already cut, shot and cut to a certain degree. So yeah, usually I've given, we're given what's called a rough cut. So they've sort of like loosely put lots of different footage scenes together. And then, um, then you might pick one scene and you call, we call that a cue from A to B, not everyone starts at the beginning. You, you might just pick one poignant scene, which, you know, if you want to try and impress the director to try and land the job, you pick a scene that you've, um, you relate to, and then you start writing to that footage. So I put that footage into um, Pro Tools, but there's all the diff- all the doors do it now, the um, DAWs do it now, and, um, and away you go. And then usually it, you know, in an ideal world before, um, before they before editing became so fast and up to the last nth degree you would get a you would get a final cut a locked cut quite early on but uh, you know we're all finding these days that locked lock cut means like they're not going to change it anymore the editor's going to edit and director's like they're happy with it all the scenes are done and so in an ideal world you get a locked cut quite early but sometimes that doesn't happen till quite late but a good director will say look don't 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 cut don't write to picture too closely like don't write it to the last frame you know when there's a punch or something and you want to hit that with a symbol or whatever you know because this could shift a bit just give me a vibe for that scene and and then but then other times a director will say look that scene's locked I'm not going to change that scene so then you can write really close to, to picture. And is there an element like do you have the freedom to create and apply your own sounds or does it tend to be quite prescribed? Um, it depends on the relationship and the vision of the director. So, um, uh, sometimes a director will come to you or you, you're trying to land the job and they say, I want jazz. And, and I'll be like, sure, I could do jazz. And then I bite my fingers. (laughs) Okay. I'm sure I can do this. (laughs) Um, and but ultimately they they have come to you knowing your stuff and knowing that you can do it but if if you're fairly new you might you might have stuff on soundcloud already and they kind of like the vibe of you so um so but usually a a director because they've worked with their film from the script in australia most of them are, are writers as well um they've already had this vision and tone in their head um, and then as they're editing, they've used temp music. So that means music they've taken from another film or maybe just on their, on their collection, you know, and they've plonked it in there just to get a vibe. So usually they'll have a vibe already. Um, sometimes depending on your relationship with your director, you might be able to shift that. You might, you might say, look, do you want to try something more like this? Um, they may or may not be up for it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of both, but most of the time, especially in, in sort of the early stages when you're first starting out, a director will come with an idea already. Going back to that first short film with your friend, did you find that you did that? Did that unlock a sense of inspiration and motivation in you just being a part of that process? Did it open up a whole new world for you? Oh yeah, definitely. Because before that I was all about the band and, wanting to tour the band and trying to get another gig for the band and um, releasing, you know, recording and releasing the next album. So, um, no, with, with that film, it was, yeah, definitely it, it showed me another way that 
oh, I could actually do this. And particularly because it was in the world of dance as well. Um, it's just my other love. So um, it definitely opened a new way of thinking. And from that first one, was it, was it pretty quick before you moved into your next film or TV opportunity or did it take a bit of time to build that momentum? Oh, yeah, definitely took time and understanding as to how to get your next gig, your next film. So I ended up going through the film school. Um, I think I would recommend that for any film composer who wants to start out, just to approach film schools, put your name up on the corkboard. Um, yeah, I can't remember how it went, but I did quite a lot of shorts through that film school. And when you were creating a composition, what are you trying to elicit from the audience? You know, knowing that once there's a final product, there's going to be people sitting there watching this, consuming this. Like, what's in your mind when you're creating it? What are you trying to get out of that audience? For film composing, it's more about serving the picture. It's you sort of not really... I think it's different, different as a band performing on stage because you, you are thinking about the audience then. Um, well, you know, I am anyway. There's some really good muses that don't need to because <laughs> they're just amazing. Um, yeah, it's always about serving the picture. So it's always about making sure the, the story supports what, what the audience is seeing, I guess, and, and supports what the director's vision is. So you might read a scene and go, oh, I want to I focus on that, that character's point of view because it's really, you know, it's a shifting moment for that character and it's, it's all very um, dramatic and some sort of realisation. But really the director might go, no, actually I want to take, I want you to take the point of view of that character over there. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's a lot about how you read the picture and also what the director wants as well. And then if you disagree with the director, then, then you, if you have a good director, they'll listen and you'll, you'll find a pathway. And I have to ask, Mealy, when you're sitting at home, you put the TV or a film on, do you, do you find it hard to detach yourself from hearing all the, the music? Because it, it's one of those ones that there, there is so much music, but sometimes it almost um, gets caught up and you, you lose track of it. But do you sit there and think, oh, maybe this could have been done differently or maybe that could have been done differently? Oh, all the time. It irritates my husband to no degree. It's really, <laughs> I, I end up going, oh, that was an interesting choice of instrument. Yeah, that's good. Oh, wow. You know, usually I'm critique. Usually I'm admiring what the, what the composers have done because they've made it that far to get it onto the, you know, to the commercial screen. So, um, but yeah, like uh, it's interesting watching old movies, especially from the nineties where they used a lot of woodwinds and a lot more melody which is just so not done now and, and it sounds a little bit almost a bit cliche or corny or something but from the 90s but there's these big films you know with DiCaprio in it or, or something like that or, and it's like wow back then that score would have just been so it but now you can hear it as being so different so and I'm not concentrating on the film at all. So. <laughs> Does your inspiration when writing the scores, yes, you've got a, a brief from a director or an editor, but do you lean into kind of personal experience? Do you tap into your own um, experiences of music and, and channel that into what you're creating? Instinctually, maybe I would. Um, you know, if, if there's a scene where there's someone in distress and I've decided to use the piano because that's, that's my go-to at that point in time, yeah, so instinctually I'll, I'll play what, I'll look at the image and I'll play what feels right. And usually I'll have a broad template in mind of, you know, the, usually over time you, you have a template of sounds that you go, that I go to um, for a particular emotion or vibe. And um, so I'll know sort of maybe clinically is like, oh, okay, I'm going to get a lot of percussion here because... You know, I want, I, I want this to be big, moving and rhythmic. It's a car chase scene, say. Okay, so, so from a clinical perspective, it would be like, yeah, we're going to use some percussion. We're going to use big tycos and snare. And then, um, but then when you sit around and play it, I'll be like, just play it on my MIDI keyboard and see what comes out, you know, while I'm watching it. And 
yeah, and then shift a few MIDI notes around and make sure it's all in time and hope for the best. Mila, you said uh, prior to our chat that you love that when completing the composition step of the music, sitting back and listening to the mock-up and simply enjoying the piece instinctually, like that's something that you hold uh, near and dear. Is it often that you, you sit down, you listen to that first take, are you able to kind of submit that or do you need to kind of go back and re-edit it? Are you quite self-critical in your work? Yeah, I think it, it, there's always a lot of going back. Yeah, usually, so often I'll be like, okay, I'm going to sit back and listen to it now. And I've gotten two bars. He's like, oh, no, that bit's all wrong. I'll change it. You know, it's like, oh, so after like three hours, you think you've done the perfect cue and it's like, okay, it's done, it's done. And then sit back and then suddenly it's, oh, no, I've just got to turn this up or turn this down or add this note here. So, yeah, I, I think I am quite a perfectionist, probably to my detriment. Um, it drives everyone a little bit crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, mixing is probably one of the biggest challenges for me after after the composition side then you know if I have to mix if I don't have if I don't have the funds to get a mixer that's when I also get really pedantic as well this is the passion and perspective podcast brought to you by sporting chance media for three decades, Penrith and the surrounding community has turned to the Western Weekender. Whether it's the Weekender's highly revered print edition or its up-to-date news offerings through its digital presence, the Weekender truly is the heartbeat of Penrith. Visit westernweekender.com.au or find your copy every Friday. The styles of music that you've been involved in and people can check this out on your website you know there's there's uplifting and inspirational there's the action the pop the dark and moody it is quite an array are you drawn to a specific style um, of composition um i probably do prefer to write for things which are more dark dark yet beautiful and dangerous I probably, yeah, I guess that's slowly defining that over time, <laughs> what I like to write for. But ultimately, I just like to write for something that serves the picture. So I wrote this great little, uh, foot, I thought it was great for me anyway. This is um web series. Hopefully they'll come out soon. And she's, it's a LGBTQI comedy, um, very urban, sort of like inner West vibe. And um and she was going for this Woody Allen jazzy vibe. And, um, you know, I never thought I could write jazz tunes, but I wouldn't say they're like highfalutin, amazing Charlie Parker jazz, but, you know, I think I, I think I got away with it. And, you know, I look at it with the picture and the comedy and how it all sits with certain characters. I was like, no, yeah, I'm proud of that. So um, ultimately if it works with picture, I'm happy. But if somebody was to come to me and say, do you want to write to this film, which is about, um, uh, which is a comedy or, or do you want to write this film which is a, you know, a dark dystopian uh, you know, action I'd go the dark dystopian action Along the way Mealy has there been a particular person you know, a mentor, director, editor that you've looked up to and learnt the most from? Oh yeah, mentors are so exp important um, so I have a, a friend um, and composer, Brian Kachia, and he, um, he went to Hollywood and worked in one of the big, big studios in Hollywood, Tyler Bates. He did 300 and he's done a whole, whole of the Watchmen and all that. So he worked for him in Hollywood for many years and then he came back here and now he's doing a whole lot of features. And so he's been really great to be working. I was his assistant for a few of his features and he showed me a lot of the nuts and bolts of how to handle really big cues of, you know, orchestra tracks of like 50 orchestra tracks and, you know, um, cues for giant, um, for features and feature length cues. And, um, 
I think he's great in, and also just observing how he might be talking to the director or the producer and things like that. So, and sort of by osmosis, the actual music, the way he writes, you know, that's been interesting to observe because we're very different writers. But um, as a mentor, um, I think that, you know, it's been invaluable, that sort of experience. I would really recommend anyone who wants to get into this scene to find a mentor or go into mentorship programs because you might not learn so much about the craft of writing music such as, you know, your tonalities and um, chord progressions, transposing and instrumentation and orchestra colours, all that. But you, I think you learn a lot about the trade as well, which I think is equally as important if you want to keep going. And along the same lines, you were you've had the opportunity to travel with some of your musical projects over the years, that kind of global exposure. Um, what, what does that mean to you? Oh, uh, I think maybe that's one of those ego stroking extraneous, you know, things that make you feel like, Oh, I'm, I'm making a life out of this. This is fun, you know? And, um, we went to a film festival in Spain and I met up, with the director and DOP there and just um, sipping sangria on the beach of Spain. <laughs> uh, you know, and just go and see films all day. It's all you did. It's just like, I'm going to go watch a Korean action film now. This is awesome. <laughs> um, I feel that's part of the balance of just having fun. Like, you get everyone loves watching a movie. So, um to be to go overseas for a purpose of you know promoting your film or whatever and and hanging out with your director and you know building nice actual real friendships that's also life which which is important to me to keep that perspective and from a technical standpoint being exposed again to to different countries do do they approach the musical composition in a different way are there similarities yeah, I mean, just from observations of the way the different movies come out, especially like Scandinavian composers are really interesting um, versus uh, European composers versus USA composers. And they all tend to come part and parcel as to the style of film that's being made as well. So, yeah, definitely in terms of um, observations through watching films of from different countries, there's different approaches and different palettes. Um, but a lot of that is intermingled with the style of film is how they colour it and how fast they edit it. You know, um, wide shots, close shots, um, uh, uh, tempo of the shots, you know, that a lot of that, um, you know, does the director want you to, to tell the audience more or does the director want you to sit back? And although they're all individual, I do think there are nuances in uh, between countries. Nowadays, you are living in the Blue Mountains and your place in the studio backs onto the, the National Park in Katoomba. What inspiration have you drawn from the local area? Um, yeah, somebody asked me this the other day and I think it's more that, it's not that I draw, off, I don't know if I draw directly from, it's more like, it's like again being grounded back into the real world. It's sometimes the deadlines can be so hectic. You're working... 13 hour, nearly 15 hour days just to make some crazy deadline, you know, and you're under the pump. Um, and, and, you know, you just walk, I just walk out on the deck and, and I just see the flock of cockatoos or, you know, focus on, focus on the distance and this tree that's way over there, you know, down the creek line. And yeah, I just remember that you know it's not all that I I live in a world that it's not it's not going to be the end of the world. Like if I if I miss deadline, it's okay. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, it's going to suck, and you might people might not want to hire you again. But at the end of the day, I, you're living in this world that um, that is you know I'm lucky to be here in, in this place. We live in a great country, and and I've got fresh air, and you know. Not everything has to hang on finishing this job. And we were speaking before the interview about, you know, the proud and strong arts culture and community in the Blue Mountains. What does that mean to you to be able to tap into that and, and lean on other uh, creatives in the area? 
Yeah, just, um, it's really lovely, actually. I just went to this house gig a few weeks ago. And just, just everyone's a bit like-minded and um, <clears throat> everyone's always exploring. And I think that's important. You've got to just keep on exploring and hearing new things. <clears throat> and music is so vast. And the next film score, you know, you always want your next film score to be this new original sound, you know. <laughs> like everyone's, as a composer, um, I'm always searching for this new sound that probably can never actually exist because music's been around for so long now. And, I mean, um, yeah, so it's it's great just to meet people and how different people get in, inspired or they're exploring this one tiny little thing about music or this one little soft synthesis or this one little analog synth they've got and they've been turning these knobs a certain way and they came, you know, these new sounds came out. And so just just to have those little passing conversations and and just realise that there's just so much out there to learn and to discover. And for you, your cello, it's one thing you cannot live without uh, and it does, as you said, with the nature, it also helps you keep, also helps keep you grounded. Why is that mm. the case? Um, because I use cello as a main means of continuing to learn classical repertoire. So perhaps that's my childhood um, thing continuing on. Um, to me, to me, that's explore, exploration. Other people will, you know, find it very differently. Um, to me, because I'm, always trying to find new things and new sounds, new ways of putting sounds and music together um, to make this, you know, hopefully new original score. A cello, I can, I play a piece from 1850 by, you know, by a well-known composer who's been trodden before, just keeps me grounded and, you know, you can analyse how it, how the melody moves, how the structure moves and, and getting back to just the sound of the cello and the different sounds you can get out of the cello and and just grounds me into like this is this is where it all begins. It begins with the sound in which you make and how you you know, how fast you pull the bow, how how hard you vibrato how fast you vibrato, like the actual sonic quality, it all starts from that. Do you ever take the time to to kind of pause and reflect and look back on the journey? You know, it's been a pretty amazing ride from, you know, starting your own band to jumping into short film um, music composition to, to going on to winning that Screen Music Award a few years ago. Are there occasions where you stop and, and reflect on the, the journey to this point? Oh, always, as to whether I should quit. <laughs> Because I'm such a, <laughs> I'm a cynic. No, I'm not a cynic. I because, uh, yeah, um, yeah, always. As the goalpost keeps moving, you know. Um, the the things that you used to be happy about. Oh, you got paid for this first gig. It was this much. It was great. And now it's like, oh, is that all they're paying me now? Like the goalpost keeps changing. So, I ref I have to go back and remember this is where I've come from and um, validate my successes from those extraneous values, which sadly, I think, sadly for me, maybe, you know, I think that helps me to keep going forward. Um, I do find it is a struggle in some way. It is a struggle in terms of maintaining your, um, uh, uh, you know, we're always working in the industry to find the next gig. It's always, it's just like any business. You've got to keep generating business. So maintaining the original passion, but while still being pretty much a business person, they're two very separate roads, but they need to occur together. And do you believe in life that we find ourselves or that we create ourselves in the sense that do you think the path is laid out for us or that you have to make decisions all day every day to to form your path oh uh, you know i'm definitely someone where you have to make you have to make it your own i think and that's maybe it comes back to that discipline thing of learning you know an instrument every day and practicing every day and you know you know if you, if you know if i i knew i remember this one point in time where i knew like i really want to have make a good red hot go of making music for a living 
um, or, you know, and, and spending most of my time making music. And that was, that was a definitive goal I set for myself somewhere around the time of that first short film. And, um, you know, and you take steps to get there. Has there been a point or was there a point along the way where you thought to yourself, you know what, I can make something of this, you know, music, composition, film, TV, dance. Was there a bit of a light bulb moment or it's always been kind of just churning away, churning away? Yeah, I think it's always been churning away. I mean, there was a, uh, there was always been wanting to be involved in music somehow. First it was the band and then it was, and then there's the short films like, Oh, that's a new medium. I think I could do it. But I think it's always been, I've always known that from leaving school, I've always known that I would like to keep music in my life. And then there was, then there was points in time that was like, Oh, maybe I could actually make a living out of this. Can I? And so it never really was a light bulb moment, mostly because it was, you know, I was brought up to believe that I needed to get a real job. (laughs) So it was always been like, no, I can prove you wrong. Maybe I'm not sure. I'll try. (laughs) And Mila, you've got a a new composition, um, which is out at the back end of 2020. Uh, Where do people check that out? Oh yeah, that should be coming out soon. Yeah. It's for a feature documentary biopic of an artist called Christina Conrad from New Zealand that was meant to come out in November but they're going to release it in February so it's called Heretic but I will be releasing the soundtrack um, soon I'll probably put a single out next next month so I'll start a I haven't actually got myself a Spotify um, uh, artist account yet so it'll be sort of my first professional release as a as a composer I've had um you know, I've released a couple of EPs as a band, um, but as a composer, this will probably be my first commercial release. So, yeah, it'll, it'll probably be on the normal channels like Spotify, iTunes. And the world we're in, as we know, it keeps moving day by day, week by week. But what do the next six months or so have in store for you? Oh, yes, I got some great news yesterday. Sydney Theatre Company is um, remounting a play that I was composer for last year. Um, so they they did a co-production with uh, Riverside Theatre in Parramatta last year and we, we that was when I wrote all the music and there was like a two-week season. So Sydney Theatre Company has actually, they're going to remount it um, in Sydney and in um, Brisbane. So there'll be some work to go again to... Um, rediscover the score and make some changes to that and yeah the um, documentary will be released in February and hopefully will there'll be um, hopefully I shouldn't speak too soon hopefully there might be a a series a TV and Netflix series coming but can't just see (laughs) shouldn't say too much don't want to jinx it Mealy, thank you so much for sharing your, your incredible journey and for being a part of the Passion and Perspective podcast. Wishing you all the best. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Passion and Perspective podcast brought to you by Sporting Chance Media and proudly presented by The Western Weekender.